How's it going, guys? I'm Zeke. And I'm Jake. And you're listening to the Cinema Sideshow Podcast, episode 100. Got some self-imposed foley there, Jake. There you go. I, well, I got some uh, not-so-self-imposed foley. Zeke, I've opened up a video called Cheering Sound Effects All Sounds on YouTube. There it is. It's us celebrating episode 100. I don't, I don't know what the sounds are in this video. How long does it go for? Uh, <laughs> it, that's somewhat... Yeah! Uh, it goes for 11 minutes and 40 seconds. Do you, yeah, thank, thank you, thank you, thank you. You're welcome. We can do this for eleven minutes straight if you want. I'm good with that one, buddy. No, you're all right. Oh, that's a woman cheer wave. We, our female. Okay, I'm gonna stop. <laughs> you know, I could have just. We could have just added that in post. Nah, it felt more authentic, Zeke. We we are probably very like shit. Much, <laughs> probably, but mu- much like the film of the week, we are very authentic in our presentation and. uh Zeke, congratulations. Shake my hand, Mr. Yeah, Sir. Yeah, I will shake your hand. Here we are. Episode 100. 100. episodes. One every week. We've managed to consistently... You said this in the car to mm. me. Um, 97 Monday episode releases yeah. out of 100. We've only been late uh, one, two, three times ever yeah. on the show. Uh, I think the other side of the wind, uh, uh, us and... Shazam, we were late like a day or two. Which is episode 7, episode 12, and episode 13. So we've mm-hmm. actually gone 87 consecutive weeks hitting our <laughs> quota. Congratulations, Jake. And to celebrate episode 100, I did get you a little prezzy. Oh, a little prezzy. Oh, wait. Why, thank you, sir. You've been teasing this for a long while. I have. I completely forgot. We actually sat down ready to record episode 100, and Jake went, where's my present? Where's my present? <laughs> and I, <laughs> I had left it at uh-huh. home, so we had to quickly go... Dart well, home to get it. Well, you literally threw it at me, so I'm guessing it's not fragile. No, no. but um, we're going to have a live present opening on this audio podcast. Yay! So, oh, it's ASMR. Let's let's open this. Did you wrap this up inside the house when you grabbed? Or no, no, no. I've it had it wrapped for. Oh, I'm actually pretty good with. I'm. It was pre-wrapped. Christ- Jake, it is Christmas season, so this is also your Christmas present on top of your epo- episode 100 present. I'll take that. I'll take that. I so, gave you. Oh wait, no, I'm getting two presents because you gave me a shirt. That I was going to pay you $3 for, and you said, nah, keep your money, Jake. Oh, that's a Hawaiian you, shirt. You need it. <laughs> All right, here we go. I'm opening the present. Let's see. Oh, there's more. Oh. Oh, that's so sweet. Oh, you got to open it up completely, buddy. I know. I'm, I'm just getting a little preview, a little logo in here. Where's the hole? <laughs> oh, it's there is no hole. i gotta, I got to create it myself. Oh, yeah. There you go. That's the sound effect. There you go. So, can Smells. you describe Smells. to our lovely viewers right. what your... I'm holding a white shirt that has the Cinema Sideshow podcast on it. I'm going to open it up now because it's currently folded. Oh, oh my goodness. Now, Zeke. Yes. You and I both graduated uh, primary school and high school in here in Australia. I feel we like, did. I feel like it's common to have the names all listed on the back. Oh! But no, keep you, explaining the you high school. Cheeky, I didn't even notice that. So, um, yeah, the back of the shirt. Oh, that's so cute. Is the entire slate of a hundred films, and yep, yeah, it's it's completely accurate. Look at that. Yep. Beautiful. This is why we had to pre-plan it Absolutely. ahead of time, didn't we? That's amazing. So that's uh, awesome. To describe to the audience, like Jake was saying, on the back is the first hundred episodes 
on the back from one to a hundred. Oh, Thankfully, no typos. Originally, there was a typo. Oh, really? Um, I. Did you have missed... to reorder it? Or? No, I didn't order it. Okay. I didn't order it. Thankfully, with the typo, you double checked. I double triple checked. Oh, um, that's awesome. And yeah, I'm sure we'll put up a little uh, cheeky Instagram post later on with us wearing our matching Cinema Sideshow commemorative. Yeah, I was going to say you're wearing episode. one. I didn't even notice. I am. I he unbuttoned to... his shirt. <laughs> I unbuttoned my uh, button shirt <laughs> to be wearing the exact same shirt. So it is quite celebratory. Oh, but, uh, that's awesome. Yeah. I, I feel like, well, I'm wearing a white shirt now. I don't, I don't think it's going to look too different if I just swap right now. Well, yeah. Well, exactly. I like looking at it, though. That's the difference. 100 episodes. Hosted by Zeke Morgan, Heine, Jake, Diagrella. It's all right, buddy. You can put it on in the break. I think I will because I, I just like looking at this. This is awesome. This yeah. is awesome. Thank no. you very much, sir. No, that's okay. Happy 100 episode episodes, buddy. <laughs> You Probably can you, after a hundred uh, episodes. Yeah, you start fumbling the words a little bit. Yeah, well, talk speaking of uh, the first hundred episodes, we're going to do a little cheeky little reflection on mm. these these hundred episodes. Obviously, this is kind of a crazy thing. I was saying <laughs> to you in the car ride over that not many podcasts that start up do get to a hundred, and it's pretty amazing that we've managed to get this far and consistently yeah. deliver the product for at least ninety-seven weeks on time with three. You know, little late, but in the week of. Still like within we... the week of, so, you know, the episode of the week is still an accurate saying. Exactly. Um, and, yeah, we've compiled a quick list of 10 statistics of the show. Mm. I'll kick us off here. So, obviously, our show has many platforms which you can listen to it on. You can catch it on Apple and Spotify and Podbean. Where are you going with this? Mm. And I would just like to say that uh, the most listened platform in which we have our show on is indeed... Spotify. Yep, no surprises. At 64.2%, which is actually lower wow. than I thought it would be, which means yeah. we get other platforms. Shout out to Google Chrome. Oh, really? And, yeah, the Chrome player, apparently. Oh, interesting. And well, Podbean, uh, Podbean, surely. And yeah. Podbean uh, Direct, yeah. We so, don't have a lot of Apple listeners? No, no. It's definitely majoritively on Spotify, which we sort of figured it's definitely the platform we promote the most on. Interesting. It's funny because uh, whenever I talk to people about the podcast, more more often than I would assume, a lot of people actually ask, like, oh, well, what kind of numbers are you doing? I think I think because we've hit this many episodes, there's an assumption, oh, you guys must be, like, getting a lot of listenership. And I, I say, I'm like, I intentionally avoid that yeah. because I don't really – I have access to the Podbean page, but I usually don't go onto it. Um, so I was like, well, Zeke can look at it if he wants – I'm not sure how, I guess now you're looking at some stuff, but... Um, yeah, I don't look at it a lot. Yeah. At the end of the day, we've always said this show from episode one has been a platform for just us to develop and grow as filmmakers mm. and sort of report and discuss films on a weekly basis and really give a more, not always critical platform, a more casual way of approaching film mm. and making it more open for everyone's interpretation. It's why we... <coughs> You know, encourage people to constantly talk to us about the show, what we're watching on the show, and having all kinds of guests come on the show from different fields just to have their input on film. Yeah, for sure. And, and um, I'm with you in the sense that it, it's nice kind of not really knowing or paying attention to the viewers because it's like, I, I always love this little quote from uh, Brett, Betsy Brandt from Breaking Bad. It was like it was one of the behind the scenes thing. They were talking about the earlier seasons, how they weren't getting a lot of viewership in the first few seasons. And she made a joke of someone like, oh, do you pay attention to that? And she's like, well, not really. What am I going to do? Act harder to bring in the numbers? And she's like, what do you mean? So I, I kind of appreciate it in the sense of like, we're doing our thing. And yeah. it doesn't matter 
I, I, I like being ignorant of the numbers in a way because it doesn't make me think about it too much. Absolutely. Um, but yeah. But yeah, no, we've got a couple. I'm sure you've got a couple of statistics you'd like to throw my way. Yeah, well, you fun ta- facts. Fun facts. Well, you talked a bit about how um, people watch this content on different platforms and stuff. Um, I finally actually sat down and quickly just checked how many, how much content do we actually have? And I figured for episode 100, of course, this, this is applicable for the first 99. Mm-hmm. So you just add on to however many minutes this podcast is. Uh, we are looking at about 132 hours and 14 minutes of Zeke and Jake goodness. That's a lot of talking about film. That's a lot of talking. Now, I was a little surprised by this because we typically go over an hour, but we've never actually gone over the two-hour mark. Mm-hmm. So I was like, how did we get 132 hours? But I guess that does kind of make sense because even even if it was an hour and a half each, that should apply to about 150 hours. Yeah, it adds up. So, um, Well, I yeah. mean, we have had, even though we don't obviously focus on the viewership, mm. um, because we've had 132 hours of content, we're actually listened to in multiple countries around the world, which Whoa, is kind of a cool. interesting sort of uh, phenomenon, seeing as we are very humble Australia-based <laughs> Perth-based We are your humble boys. Um, Obviously, that being said, our highest viewership country is, of course, our motherland, Australia. Motherland, Australia. Um, But it'd be interesting (laughs) to find out what our second highest country is um, by a significant margin. I'm going to guess the US. It is indeed the United States of America. Yeah, it helps that you've dated people from that country that, that probably listened to the in show the past, at some point. I did, and that probably did cover <laughs> that ground. Um, I that can't say said, that I've dated any Americans yet. Yes. Um, that being said, I'm sure. Well, that's how you get a trans uh, trans platform, right? Uh, multi. <laughs> no. That being said, we've also followed by Spain and Portugal with the two Ooh, third and my fourth. My boys high. over in Portugal. So. I guess you're... I think I can claim responsibility for that, I guess. So, yeah. Um, That's awesome. Uh, yeah, I find that really fascinating in terms of uh, this This show does get to mm. all different corners of the world. I like that. I like that very much. Well, uh, I'm looking at uh, some of the films that we've done, Zeke, and we're going to talk a bit about that, but I think uh, it would be interesting to look at the newest and oldest films that uh, we've tackled. I think, ironically, the newest one would have been last week with Mank. That is the newest released film uh, to come out that we've talked about, especially mm-hmm. with its Netflix release. However, the oldest film we've talked about, and this might not be too much of a surprise. I think we got interesting at some point. It was looking to be the late 80s with Once Upon a Time in the West and uh, The Graduate and stuff. Uh, but when we did our Decades Challenge Yes, a the while Countdown ago, Through the Decades retrospective... <laughs> In which we gave you guys the it's, chance to vote on yeah. what film we would watch on a week-by-week basis, which honestly was perfectly timed given the events of cinema, modern cinema, modern-day cinema, and obviously the state of the world. Yeah, well, there just wasn't any really new films coming out um, other than the occasional thing on streaming. So it was a good... You're right, it was a good time to do the, the look back. Um, and I think that challenge made this statistic very obvious but nevertheless interesting, the oldest film we reviewed on the show was from 1939, The Wizard of Oz. Yeah, and I, I obviously no surprise there if you are a <coughs> constant listener of the show. Um, we loved doing that uh, retrospective poll. Mm. It was a really good way of kind of getting through, and we might revisit it uh, next year, but mm. um, particularly in that sort of mid-year time where it's quite a dry period no matter what, even mm. excluding the events of, of 2020's world, 
if you look back to 2019, we had a very similar, uh, not uh, around that 30s mark. It was quite a lot okay, of... Okay, um, interesting. Not a lot of new films. There was a few sprinkled in there, but a lot of them were uh, revisits because we didn't have a lot of uh, new films to kind of sink our teeth into. Yeah, of course. Yeah, I'm looking at our, our 30s slate, and you're right. Like We did Coin Scotsy, The Matrix... Fight Club, King of Comedy. Um, there was a fair few uh, older mm-hmm. films that we revisited, although it was pretty equally mixed mm-hmm. with uh, films like Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, The Nightingale, Joker, El Camino. So yes. it was a good mix. Well, speaking of the 30s, and in particular Joker, mm. remains our most downloaded episode wow. ever. Next to obviously, and I do exclude this, our first episode ever, because pilot episodes often are the most viewed episode mm. on podcasts. But yeah, Joker is... And still is our highest listened to episode. Wow! At episode thirty-eight, I guess that kind of makes sense. It was a. I remember when it came out, and again, I don't consciously check, but sometimes I go onto the Podbean, and it actually has downloads on the front page. I remember that being very high, very quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, so I guess that doesn't surprise me. Um, I'm surprised like Avengers Endgame wasn't up there. Maybe it was. Mm. I mean, at the end of the day, it does come back to, I think there was a lot of controversy around that film and very divisive Mm. at the time. So I think our opinions, because we were pretty quick into watching that film when it got released in Australia in particular. Yeah, well, I I think think it was a worldwide drop for Joker. Yeah. Yeah. I I think our opinions were uh, heavily influenced or at least people would be able to contribute to the conversation with us about that film. Mm, For sure. It had such a, a big pull. So yeah, very nice. Who who wait? I who who we shoot? Oh, you just did it with mm-hmm. with Joker being the most viewed. Um, cool. Well, all right. Let's let's talk a bit about uh some. We talked a bit about the oldest versus newest films that we've done. I want to talk a bit about uh the longest and shortest episodes that we've done. So not not mm-hmm. how long or short the films are themselves. Although I can confirm that our the shortest film we reviewed on the show was Blue Jay. Interesting. Yeah. I thought that was... In, and, of course, Irishman is the longest at three and a half hours. Uh, but that's not the statistic. That's you a get, side fact. Yeah, you get yeah you get a sideshow so, fact. Yeah. A little extra. Um, no, that I want to talk about our personal podcast. Uh, of course, I shouldn't say of course, but uh, our longest episode ended up being Parasite, episode 57. Uh, at, let me pull that up for you to get the exact... It's the 2019 Oscar winner for Best Picture. Yeah. Well, that was that was part of it, is that we talked about that right after it won the Oscar. So we talked about the Oscars and the results and our thoughts on that in addition to the Parasite review. Uh, so the episode ended up being an hour and 56 minutes long. So uh, that was our longest by about 30 seconds, beating Jojo Rabbit, uh, which I'm surprised we talked about Jojo Rabbit for that long. Uh, and our shortest ended up being... Uh, never rarely, sometimes, always, which is a very recent episode we did at mm. forty-five minutes. There we go. So we've actually never gone above two hours, but nope. never below half an hour. So ah, there you go. We're in a nice tight. We've always said it from the yeah. start of this show when we've sat down and talked about doing this show. We never <coughs> wanted an episode to be shorter than I think thirty minutes, but we never wanted an episode to be longer than two hours. So yeah, we definitely um, those first few we we lingered around the hour. Spot. I think the first time was Dogtooth when we had Jesse on as a guest that it, it pushed above 60, 65 minutes. Mm, I think if I remember in our pitch, it was 45 minutes to an hour 30 was our sweet spot. Yeah. So, and then we just completely blew it out of the water for Avengers Endgame at an hour 50. 
<laughs> and then from there, it sort of started evening out a bit, I think. Yeah, yeah there's only been the occasional spikes. Um, a fun little side fact, including the download time, the most popular time people have listened to our show has been Monday at 3 p.m. Oh. Which I thought was very interesting. And that might be to, although we've released 97 episodes on the Monday, <laughs> they're not at set times. Well, I was going to say, 3 p.m. is pretty early we usually i'll say more often than not it comes out after 3 p.m on a monday yeah so i found that really intriguing yeah that's but, interesting uh, I mean, that has to be correlated though with with the release absolutely like that's not a coincidence at all no no it's it's, it's kind yeah. of fascinating the eagerness and maybe people sitting down with their afternoon beers <laughs> listening to our podcast i don't know yeah exactly this is waiting they're waiting yeah. for it to drop i would need to hear their review of mank <laughs> When's it going up? <laughs> you got another one for me? Uh, yeah. All right. Well, this would probably be the last one I've thrown you. Oh, I guess, you know what? I'll say this is the last one, but I do have the uh, Letterboxd page open. I can I can mess with some statistics around here. We'll see. Uh, the last one I want to give to you now, Zeke, is that we've had a fair few guests on the show. Mm-hmm. In fact, we've had a total of seven guests throughout uh, our now 100-episode run. Uh, do you want to have a guess who was the most uh, frequent guest of ours. And I think you probably... This is a pretty easy answer, but let's put it, it out there. It was pretty easy. Uh, yeah, I would say it's a pretty easy answer, even though he hasn't been on an episode for at least 25, Neal- 30 episodes. Nearly 50. Wow. So His last appearance was on Uncut Gems. That is fascinating. That would be none other than Jack Bett. Mr. Jack Bett has come on the show nine times. In the first 50 He's got to come on for his 10th. He's got to have his 10th episode. Yeah, for sure. I think, see, so yeah, his last one was, I think he was on it very often. And then I think after Joker, it was a big break. We, I mean, we had guests like Danny and stuff as well. Mm-hmm. And we had our, our giant six week, six weeks of pre-records. And then he came back on for Uncut Gems. That's the only episode he's done this year, which is insane. It's pretty crazy. That's crazy. Um, just quickly, prior, before we move into our next part of the show, which is another special section, because we've got mm. quite a few special sections on this we show. We do. Um, we've had 19 director's corners so far, Jake. <laughs> we are about to move into our 20th one. Yes. Ah, uh, yes, yes, yes. I found, we both found this quite fan, uh, fascinating. Obviously, we now have 100 episodes imprinted on the backs of our shirts. <laughs> um, and we sat down and we wanted to know what was the most watched director we had. And... It so happens this director we did do on a very recent director's corner. Yes. And we have actually never done more than two episodes with every other director bar this one. Mm. is the only one to have three episodes on this show. Jake, can you guess it by chance? Uh, I believe, and this was a very recent director's corner we've done, the answer is Ms. Sophia Coppola. That is true. Sophia Coppola. And it kind of, it's funny it, enough, it, ties it, exactly yeah. into oh what's going to happen later on in the show. Yeah. <laughs> uh, we actually did her first episode all the way back in a th- the, the the birthing of our show. Episode 16. With Marie Antoinette starring, well, guest starring, starring uh, guess, Jesse yeah. Newell. Um, and of course, then we did, obviously, her director's corner with The Virgin Suicides, which we both were very fond of. Mm-hmm. And of course, we also did uh, her latest film, uh, on the rocks, <laughs> and I find it funny because we've always talked about potentially doing Lost in Translation on the show. So had we had done that, she would have had four appearances. Yeah, she would have been show. way ahead. It's it's funny because like you say that, and we we sat down to check how many we've done with different directors. Well, You're right. 
I'm pretty confident we've only done two films per director, bar her films. Yeah. Which is really and fascinating. And it was a late surge. She had back-to-back weeks. Yeah, I know. She she came in real quick. She bloody bolted ahead to the finish line at the so, very last second. What can you say about that? That was our 18th director corner. So Yes. Um, and we'll tie in a bit later to the show. I've just realized something, Jake. I think I, I think I know what you realized. I forgot to do our film of the week quote. Yeah, no. That's I mean it's a very special episode. Do you want to do a quote? Do you have one ready? Or? I do. Have oh. one ready. Oh, okay. Well in that case. Go and ahead, gonna, sir. From so this is the decider. So Jake's on five for five right now. So and it'll go back to me after this film. So this is it, Jake. I'm gonna this decides whether you this get is up. terrifying. And I'm really blanking on the two thousands films. Yeah. Well, I can rest assured that I'll give you one little hint this week in order to give you the leg up because it's a special occasion. It is special, so we we should give me the win. <laughs> <laughs> we have done this film on the show and Okay. This was a director's corner. Okay. I'm I'm uh, feeling confident about this and narrows it down. Okay. Are you ready? <sighs> I I'm ready. Lenny, you can't trust a man's life to your little notes and pictures. <laughs> That's a good one. You know what's sad is I, I, as soon as you said Lenny, I don't know why I remembered the character Lenny, but I do. That is Memento from Christopher Nolan. Which happened to be our first director's corner. Oh, wow. There you go. So a nice little callback. Um, ooh, yeah. That was a little director's corner fact corner, basically. <laughs> Director Fat Corner. Jesus, the wordings are getting a little crazy out here, I think. Yeah, exactly. Um, (laughs) Yeah, so that's the 10 facts from the Cinema Sideshow's first 100 episodes. It's been been quite a journey. Has been quite a journey. Almost exactly two years now. Yeah, and we've had a lot of people to join us along the way. Mm, We have, and in fact, we've done something a little special, Zeke. What's that? With those people. So we've had many guests on the show, as we mentioned earlier. Um... I figured since it is a special day, episode 100, that uh, I would like them to all say a few words for us in celebration of the 100th week of the show. Hi, everyone. I'm Perry. I was a guest on episode 62 and 65 covering The Princess Bride and Ladybird. I just wanted to say congrats on 100 episodes, you guys, and here's to 100 more. Hey everyone, this is Zachary Cave. You may remember me from episode 64 covering Jersey Boys, introducing Jake and Zeke to the world of 1950s, 60s musicals as directed by Clint Eastwood. Uh, Happy 100, boys. Uh, Hope the next 100 are just as good as these ones have been. Love your work. Hey Jake's grandma. Happy 100th birthday. Look, I don't really know you well, but in fact, like, I don't think I've even met you before, but regardless, I hope you have a great... Wait, wait... Hold on. It's the podcast. It's it's for the podcast. Oh, shit. I read your email wrong, mate. I'm so sorry. <laughs> I'm so sorry. Uh, oh, yeah, the podcast. Yes, that podcast. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, happy, happy 100 episodes, uh, Cinema Sideshow. Um, sorry for completely botching this. Uh, I am Jesse. I was on... Didn't I do Dogtooth or something like that? Yep, I freaked you all out with Dogtooth. Um, I then bored Zeke to death with Mary Antoinette. 
Uh, I then uh, made you aware of the most underrated film, Blind Spotting, and then we all talked about Joker Light, you know, uh, the king of comedy. So, yeah, uh, congratulations for making it to episode 100. Um, here's to many more episodes. Hi, my name is Danny, and I was on the 45th episode, and I just want to give a big shout out and congrats to Jake and Zeke on their 100th episode. Hey, I'm Stephen Clark. I was on the Cinema Sideshow podcast for episode 63, reviewing Whiplash. And I uh, just wanted to say congratulations to Jake and Zeke for reaching 100 episodes. Great work, guys. Looking forward to 100 more. Hey, it's Jack. How's it going, Jake and Zeke? Congratulations on 100 episodes of the Cinema Sideshow podcast. You may remember me from episode 8, Captain Marvel, episode 12, Us, episode 15, Avengers Endgame, episode 22, Thunder Road, episode 23, Toy Story 4, episode 31, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, episode 34, It, chapter 2, episode 38, Joker, and episode 58, Uncut Gems. They were some lovely little uh, snippets we got from our guests there, Jake. Some nice young people on, that, yeah, on our course. list of guests. We appreciate every single one of them. We would love to have them all back on the show. And hopefully, you know, we go into our third year of this show running. We might have a couple of new guests too. Mm, the season three guest spots. Mm. <laughs> but obviously the show wouldn't be nearly as fun and enjoyable if we didn't have people there supporting us. So mm. we thank for everyone who's come on the show or given us comments or messages or asked <laughs> us for opinions. Um, and we'll be doing everything in our power to keep delivering them weekly content for the next hundred episodes to come. Absolutely. This this is it. This um, podcast's going strong, mm-hmm. and uh, we want to keep the the content rolling and chugging along, and and keep the quality up, including mm-hmm. the audio quality. We'll be we're breaking into universities to <laughs> retain our quality. Well, uh, that being said, we did offer a little contest mm-hmm. to you guys, a little competition to show our appreciation to you. With your uh, with a uh, episode this week, basically. Yeah. So last week we kept it a bit of a secret. You posted a little teaser, which I thought was very appropriate. One of those <laughs> like, oh, oh, I know this sort of teasers. I I <laughs> think, and um, we had the. Uh, it was actually yesterday when someone correctly guessed the film of the week. Uh, it was actually my good friend Nikisha Moody, who uh, won the competition. Uh, she can now pick two films out of the previous hundred we've done. Uh, that now we're going to get to it on DVD or Blu-ray. So it's very exciting. I know at least one of them is Spirited Away. There we go. So um, very exciting. Congratulations, Nikisha, for correctly guessing the film of the week. But Jake, what are we watching? This week of the show, we're watching The Godfather. crime family patriarch Vito Corleone barely survives an attempt on his life, his younger son, Michael, steps in to take care of the would-be killers, launching a campaign of bloody revenge. This is our 20th Director's Corner, mm. and it ties into, well, the Coppola family. Our most family. successful director on the show. <laughs> most watched. Most watched yes. director on the show. Her, her father, yes. the man who probably taught her a couple of things at least. 
Yes, and also features in one of these films. Yes, yeah, she's a, a has a prominent role in part three, and I think she appears as like a young child in this film too. There we go. I'm sure she's in the wedding somewhere. We're speaking none other than Francis Ford Coppola, or Coppola, either one you're into. How about Cop? Polar, like a polar bear. Okay. 100 episodes of this. <laughs> no, it's really interesting. The only other film we've done from him was mm. probably his most prominent one next to this film. Yes. Uh, Apocalypse Now, in which we both had very nice things to say about that film. and Very nice, polite I things. I think we're going to be saying a lot of nice <laughs> things about this film, too. Uh, there is a reason we picked this film, because I think definitely in terms of hallmarking one of the golden decades of cinema, mm. being the 70s. This film reminded me how much the 70s is just perfect. Perfect yeah. decade of film. Um, and this is probably one of, if not the most well-received film of that decade. Mm. Uh, definitely an iconic piece of cinema. And yeah, Jake, we got to revisit it. This is not the first time you or me has watched this film. Mm, exactly. I, the first time I watched this was when we were doing the podcast. I think it was the Ocean's Eleven episode. I watched the for, for for the first time all three Godfather films back to back to back over the weekend, um, and I'm really glad I got to rewatch it for this show because I took so much more out of just watching this one film in isolation, uh, appreciating the pacing so much more than the first time where I'm just on a nine hour marathon. I want to get these done to say I've watched them. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it it's I'm I'm really glad I did it because this film is it's not overrated like at all. No. It's as wonderful and as influential as you could possibly make it out to be. It's a brilliant film. Yeah, and so in contrast, I've watched this film multiple times and yet I've only ever watched this one in that trilogy. I've never seen yeah. the second or the third part and still to this point have not seen either of those. So my viewership of this film is exclusive, which in its own way is a different kind of viewing. It's kind of mm. like... Well, it would be the equivalent of watching the first Back to the Future film exclusively. Yeah. You could do absolutely. it. Absolutely. You could watch A New Hope exclusively. Um, and obviously the other two parts still contribute and build and expand on the universe. Mm. But those films were originally standalone films with no plans of having a part two or part three. <coughs> this film originally mm. is constructed to be a single film, an isolated well, yeah. film. Well, that's the thing. Much like you know, Back to the Future and these other films we're talking about, uh, the, A New Hope is this does work as a singular film. And if you do go on and watch, you know, the other films, it feels like, you know, a, an episode out of a bigger story, and it still does. It feels, having watched part two and three, it, it, this film feels incomplete in comparison, while the arc that Michael Corleone as a character goes through is absolutely completed in this film. It, it has seen where it goes after that. It's like, ooh, it, it feels like a piece of the pie still. Mm-hmm. And that's not a knock at all. It's just, it's wonderful that it can work as both. Yeah, and but I think we can both offer those, those sides of the coin because mm. as me only watching this one, you watched all three and now I've watched this one isolated. Yep. You get sort of both sides of that coin. Um, but yeah, this film is, is pretty <coughs> masterful in, in terms of every aspect of cinema and there's a reason why you can attribute this film to influence not only films after it, but be drawn on influences that came before it. Mm-hmm. And you can really see, because Coppola was definitely, and we talked a little bit about it on Apocalypse Now. Yeah, you went to town on the, the Coppola facts yeah. in that episode, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. How he ended up being a, a flag bearer for this generation, this decade of cinema. You know, um, he was the one who was 
sort of the one that came just before Lucas and Spielberg mm. and sort of actually was a little bit more their senior. So definitely influenced and, <coughs> and aided in, in their development as, as filmmakers too. And was definitely the, the, the eldest of that sort of next generation of those Scorseses and the, the Lucases and, and Spielbergs coming mm. through. He was just the first guy to, he was basically the guy to draw first blood in the seventies. Obviously this film being a 72 yes. release. Um, and you know, obviously the films that made the other respective directors <laughs> I'm talking about didn't come until the mid to late seventies. Mm. So, um, it, it's really intriguing to see where this sort of golden decade can at least, you know, be one of the first points in which we talk about why this decade was so prominent for film. Yeah, exactly. And, and, and like you said, this film, it's really only predates, you know, these Scorsese films like, you know, Taxi Driver. And then you look at something like... I think Jaws was 76 mm-hmm. or 75. Yeah, de- definitely mid-70s and, and Star was 77. So you're right. It it, it kind of been the same influence that watching a director and then 20 years later taking that. It's not that same influence. It's a much more immediate response. But you're right. You put them all in the same pool. But, you know, um, Francis, my boy Francis Ford, uh, you could say he is the godfather of the 70s because mm-hmm. he does sort of... He's, he's within that age range... A little bit more than you know, if we look up to someone like Nolan's, like when Nolan's got many decades on us, if mm-hmm. we were to say he was our inspiration for whatever. But the fact that all of these directors are in this little, you know, patch of the seventies in such close succession of each other, it really did speak for itself. Mm-hmm. I think it's great. Yeah, yeah. So uh, we can also talk about um, in terms of performances, some of the performances in this film have mm. well basically <laughs> been the precedent for multiple actors careers this has been cornerstone performance and it's not to say that this was their only (coughs) uh sole hurrah in terms of their performances in fact a lot of them have equally i like impressive performances but they always do come back to their performance in godfather Hmm. um obviously talking about the named character the original godfather is played by uh marlon brando Hmm. and uh as per norm, had a lot of uh, politics behind the scenes in his performance in this, and as well in Apocalypse well, Now. I know, um, I know the producers and stuff, and this goes for Al Pacino as well. That they weren't that that uh, Francis Ford had to fight mm-hmm. to to cast these people, especially uh, Brando, because you have Al Pacino who's relatively unknown at the time, and then you have Brando who's very difficult notorious to work with on set allegedly i'm sure he was and when you're creating this three-hour odyssey the last Mm. thing you want is a character that's going to mean in over two-thirds of the runtime be an absolute pain because that's a lot of shooting days in which you have to deal with someone that's a high maintenance performer yeah for sure but obviously francis ford sort of saw what he could do and i don't think at this point there was any question of how good of an actor he was but like every everyone talks about his performance in this film, and mm-hmm. it's he's he's brilliant. And I and I, I wrote this down in my notes. I said I think what makes any great film like great, and this film is absolutely one of those, is an authenticity to it. When you watch this, there is an authenticity to all of the performances, and everyone feels so authentic and lived in. I feel like I'm watching actual Italian gangsters. Mm-hmm. I'm not watching actors. And it's so rare how many films where you could really push away, oh, they're an actor, they're portraying, oh, wow, they're really great. And like, no, 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 these are these characters. Yeah. It's, it's one of the best cast films of all time, easily. Oh, for sure. And that's got to be attributed to the director. And not only that, but 
obviously given Brando's reputation, um, the level of, uh, and a huge feat of a director is being mm. able to manage the creative egos of mm. their performers on set, whether that be the crew or the cast. And in order to hone that and use that ego for good rather than letting it take over a production. So for good rather than evil. Well, I mean, every <laughs> good, great performer or great director or great artist needs to have a healthy amount of ego. Mm. Like, they can't not have it. Yeah. Because there needs to be a point where you go, I know what you, I need, I know what I want, and I know what I need to get out of people to get what I want. And the way of managing people... <laughs> who are more high maintenance in a way that hones them or channels their energy in the right direction and shapes this, you know, once in a decade performance. But mm. we say that, but then we see what he did with, with Kurtz and Apocalypse Now and right. not five years later, and it's incredible. And uh, for uh, that director, this relatively new director too, someone who's just gone through the system and and slowly found them way into this odyssey of a film... Um, to channel that. And he was certainly not the first director. I mean, they're past like nine or ten before they settled on Francis Ford. Mm. So a lot a lot of the people you point at as who made this film what it is today are pretty much the people that really had to fight to be involved at all. Yeah, who were off constantly looked over. So there's, mm. there's kind of probably a underdog story in there somewhere, ironically. Yeah, for sure. There, there, there are books written about the making of this film and obviously the book that this is based on, of course, from only a couple of years prior... Um, I actually bought my brother the book about the making of this film, and I haven't read it myself. I would love to read it because the films are so great, but you're right. There, there is plenty of stories within the making of this story, mm. and the underdog the, the underdog story feels appropriate, I think. It's a... And, I mean, always coming... One of the things that is consistent, and definitely in the two films that we've discussed on the show, is how Coppola's not afraid to shy away from being bold mm. or to kind of really grind <coughs> the pace down to segments. Mm. Um, this film particularly does play like three acts very much yeah, so. they're hour-long acts. <laughs> they, and, and is so um, deliberately paced to be... Uh, not well slow definitely in the first act being completely revolved around this wedding right and the um uh, basically the fundamental developments of each character each member of the the Colleone crime family and um we really do grasp all their aspirations or where they sit in this family what mm. they're um you know been basically influenced by their godfather their patriarch where they're going to go, if they're going to take over the family, if they're going to serve the family's crime side, or if you're in the case of Al Pacino's character, mm. you actually pushed far, as far away from that as possible. You go to the army, you become the representation of of everything but the crime family because, you know, they, they like to have that balance. And it's really interesting to have this because it's important, especially with what happens in the second act to a lot of these, these members of this family. Yeah and how they all develop and how some of them don't make it to the end of the film, basically. No, and then there's a couple that I, I frankly forgot died in this film and not part two, but mm. we'll get into that later. Um, what I love about the opening scene, which um, I must have gotten confused with the deer hunter, because I, I, I remember... It's an opening scene, but it's like an opening act. <laughs> it, yeah, it is an opening act. Well, I, I forgot that the wedding is actually only 27 minutes long. I actually thought it was way longer than that. 
um, again, I'm probably thinking of the deer hunter. That's like an hour long wedding scene at the start of the film. It's still um, a very hefty time to be spending. Oh, it's in, it's incredible, and like I think there were about 750 or so extras, mm-hmm. which that was my takeaway on that first shot when you see everyone. You're like, wow, like this. It's not computer imagery here. Well, it pretty much tells you what you're about to get into. Mm. Like, um, you know, if we if we revisit something like, uh, you know, uh, 2001, which we talked about on the show, um, the way that they build into the grand, the Odyssey feeling, this this journey that you're going to go on is (coughs) all summed up by the end of the first act and how we jump into space and we have that giant jump of time. We know we're going to go on this big grand journey and everything is meant to make you feel insignificant and small mm. and you are really a fly on the wall in in this big this big grandiose universe this film is trying to create. Yeah, that was another one at 2001 that um watching it for the first time I was like, "Oh wow, the whole ape sequence is like a 20 minute sequence it takes its time and this film absolutely takes its time." And like I said, I could appreciate the pacing so much more the second time around, um especially going in knowing this film does take its time. There is a distinction I want to remind our audience. Mm-hmm. Um, we've got a smart audience. I don't need to remind anyone. But the whole you know thing of how story, plot, and storytelling are three distinct uh, beasts. And what I love about this giant three-hour epic that everyone talks about is that the actual plot and the story is not that overly complicated. No. And not a lot happens considering that it's a three-hour movie. But what they do is they let the storytelling, the pacing of the film, breathe. So, you know, they're going to dedicate 10 plus minutes to showing, oh, here's a guy going to Hollywood. He's going to try and get this guy apart. And, oh, he's not doing it. I'm going to leave a horse head in his bed. Like, that has nothing to do with the actual plot of the film. Mm-hmm. But they're showing you and they're, they're letting you live in that moment for a significant amount of time to be like, well, this is the underbelly side of this family. We've seen the backdrop of the wedding and we've seen Vito's uh, morals of, like, family and honor and, you know, why didn't you invite me for, for coffee? You know, mm. it's like... They're not murderers for the sake of being murderers. They have values that you and me can respect. But on well, the same token, there's this underbelly they want to show. And and it's kind of funny because a lot of films like these don't exist. And I say that with in mind that, you know, not a year ago were we talking about The Irishman, this three yes. and a half hour film that did very similar things in terms of it made us focus on the, <coughs> the dynamic between, well, Al Pacino, De Niro and... And Pesci, yeah. And Pesci, and, and I mean, obviously, two of two of the you know those um, actors are in at least part two, isn't De Niro in part They're two? They're both but, in part yeah, two, yeah. So there you go. Um, so obviously, those types of films are fleeting, and and mm. you know but dynamics even... like this, like this film does, is this three-hour epic showing the underbelly side of this family. Nowadays, are are often moved to TV shows or series mm, because no, you're right. um, back then uh, these types of epics were you know part of the course. Rather, it was the only way to explain this because you wouldn't have a TV show with this level of production budget back then. Yeah, it was... well, it, if you're going to the cinema in the seventies, you want to experience cinema. I don't want to sound too much like Martin Scorsese right now, but it's like they made these films, these big epic things that mm-hmm. you're going to live through and experience and breathe with the characters because. Going to the cinema was an event, and now you can just stream anything. There's less incentive to make a three-hour like epic when it's like, well, we can just make an 80-minute fun film with fun edit, and and people will like it. And and you're right, it's all reserved now for miniseries. Because I would argue, even The Irishman, uh, not that you know it's impressive that it's a three and a half-hour movie, but that film was so fast-paced. 
the first two thirds of that film was like very quick and full of montages and lots of music and stuff. And this, mm-hmm. the entire way through, is slow and more methodical than any not, of Scorsese's not to gangster Irishman films. Got moved to being a series. It got uh, cut down, didn't it? Didn't they? I do think something people with... people were like, "Oh, this is how you would watch it in four parts." It never actually got uh, cut, yeah, right, as a show. But yeah, but you're but right. The fact that people. Cool. Did yeah, that exactly. Yeah. I mean, I would come back to even something more locally based. That's something like Animal Kingdom mm. now has a TV show. My mom's been watching the TV show. She there loves it. There yeah. you go. I'm so, like, there's a movie too. And the <laughs> amount of the amount of uh, Australian crime dramas that have been moved to the Underbelly series are all TV series. Mm. They're not movies, even though they probably could have quite easily been fitted into that. You know, three four, three hour. Yeah. Structure. Another example of that is, I mean, we, we it's in the logline is Vita obviously comes close to death. He gets shot five times. Pretty early in the film, and when I first watched it, I was like, oh, he's only in it for the beginning. It's like, no, he actually has quite a lot of screen time. But the amount of time they spend on the characters, you know, frantically ringing, ringing each other and running around and trying to figure out, is he still alive? Is he dead? What's what's happening? Who did this? Uh, where's the dude that they choked out? I forget his name. Um, that was, like, practicing his lines at the start of the film. Like, mm-hmm. the fact that they spent so much time on all this confusion and the audience is there with it. We don't know. Is Vito dead? Is Vito alive? Mm-hmm. Unless you've read the book or you've seen the film, of course. Um, I appreciate that so much that it lets these events breathe and you can feel the anxiety with the characters. Well, he, and fr- from a terms of direction, his style, he does carry this over to films like Apocalypse Now where mm-hmm. he really lets the set pieces and the world uh, breathe and exist and develop naturally, not through that phonetic pacing that a Scorsese film would have. Because even you talk about Irishman with its montage thing, he was doing that with Goodfellas, not 35 Yeah, Goodfellas years. was very quick and montage and and not a knock on Goodfellas, but it's a very different kind of gangster film. Absolutely. I mean, it comes back to things like the use of narration, this film. But- yes, um, yeah. You know, it doesn't need to use narration to bridge its story. It allows characters to perform in the place, you know, in the space and and develops the story as if we were literally a fly on the wall. And mm. we're, I mean, it comes back to that way that we move from the wedding and everything's happy is going while a deal is being <laughs> struck behind closed doors at the exact same venue. Yeah. And we're sitting in on this kind of uncomfortably eerie scene as as this guy asking, um, you know, Vivido's like blessing and yeah. stuff, and he's intimidating him slowly and methodically, and we think something bad's going to happen, and it's kind of funny now that, you know, forty years later we're still watching this film and still feeling that level of uncomfortable. Yeah, age, I know? think it just speaks to the performances and how good he is, especially. And again, I think his introduction, because that's how the film opens, is is someone you know pleading and going on the story to Vito and. That's what I loved about even rewatching it. It's like I know his character, but I'm always still surprised by how calm and collected he is. He's very smart. You know, he's not just going to jump into this drug deal for the money. He's actually very clever and being like, let's actually pull back. And he's very respectful to his competitors, even though they bloody shoot him. But um, I just think that that little character development of having his power being so obvious from the very first shot, mm-hmm. but then he's not abusing that power. He's actually got these more resonant morals and I think core values as well. And, and like you were saying, the fact that this is all happening in the back room of a wedding, I, I feel like that kind of backdrop, David Lynch-esque, you know, oh, it's under the soil, all the evil stuff, um, that happens throughout where they're doing Christmas shopping and people are getting killed, you know, intercutting with that or, or the, the the brilliant baptism scene towards mm-hmm. the end of the film. Like, that's a perfect example of having the baptism... Um, you know, rejecting sin, but then he's organized all of these horrible murders mm. that are happening simultaneously. He's like, it's brilliant editing 
as well. Yeah, absolutely. It's deliberate and it's in those sort of moments where it's a little bit more uh, high high octane compared to mm. the rest of the film and it's not even that uh, chaotic, it's, it's, it's scary. It, it yeah. creates that sort of emotion of, oh, my God, they've really unleashed the monster with this character, this character that with was... Michael, yeah. Yeah, who was, who's been kept away from this life and he's withstained from this life even though he's sometimes asked to be more involved and yeah. eventually he does come to a point where he's kind of willing to step away from it when he moves to Italy and he sort of gets <laughs> comfortable uh, in in his life there with meeting a nice woman and stuff and it all comes knocking at his door. It's funny because he has that great line in, in part three where he's like, oh, they, they pull me back in. Mm. And it's like, that actually happens a couple of times in this film where you're right, when he goes to Italy and he meets this new wife of his and like things are going really well and it's... I forgot watching. I was like, "Oh yeah, she blows up." Yeah, <laughs> and uh, and some of the I forgot. I think you go into this film and we're so saturated with you know epic, violent films nowadays. I kind of went into it the first time, being a little surprised at how little violence there was. But then rewatching it last night, I was re reminded. Oh, this is a very violent. There's tons of horrible, violent for a seven, an early seventies film. I mean, you're thinking not. Not le- like even less than ten years before the mm. mainstream films were Village Roadshow productions, like musicals and stuff. Yeah. You know, and if- I'm pretty sure a musical won. Uh, it didn't win Best Picture over this, but it won a lot more Oscars than this film did on the same year. It was a and musical. That's that's what it was. I mean, that was most of uh, film was Roadshow pictures and them traveling around the country with these musicals because that's how they'd make a killing on on films. And mm. Up until Hello Dolly in like nineteen. 19- 68, I think it was. The, that was the go-to. Yeah. Um, only film, film films only took political stances or or became a little bit more hyper-violent <coughs> towards that shift, you know, in, nine, in the late 60s, early 70s. And this is where the shift started. I mean, between this film and, honestly, you watch things like a couple of years later with Jaws, there's like limbs and stuff in that film that get chopped yeah, off. Yeah, I mean, you know? Taxi Driver, this the ending to Taxi Driver. Yeah. Alone. What, what year did The Sting come out in again? 70, uh, 72. This year, oh, I, I'm pretty sure seventy two or seventy one. Yeah, I, I'm pretty sure you're right. It was it was our seventies film. But uh, the one I wanted to get is like the Sting is a fun. Ch- it kind of be three. Oh, well, there you go. This one. Yeah, because I think that one best picture as well. So it couldn't have. Yeah, so it, it actually won best picture between Godfather one and two. <laughs> that's really well, funny. Um, but that's like a fun film. It's like a fun caper, and everyone. It's just fun. Yeah. And then you you shove two very violent Godfather films on each end of that in terms of Best Picture winners. It's like, oh, wow. So you're right. It, it, this was, at the time, it would have been quite shocking violence. And even last time, I was like, man, I forgot how many violent deaths happened. And it do, it kind of juxtaposes a little bit with Vito's, you know, eventual real passing where he, he's relatively peaceful. He dies playing with his grandson. and He does have a heart attack. I think so, it? yeah. And he just sort of passes onto the... It's a beautiful little place for him to to die not just on the road yeah yeah it's it's kind of um it that's how it kind of bobs and weaves with its tension and Mm. stuff and um if you you know you i think between this film and then obviously going back to our episode 53 episode i think you're spot on yeah um 53 it's really funny how set pieces are such a big thing for for coppola you know it's (coughs) And I mean, I if I honestly like much as I like the the cinematography in this film, it's not the thing I think about first. I do think about it a lot in Apocalypse Now. This okay. film, 
it's I mean there's more emphasis on the visual the performances is definitely the thing I pick up the most mm. but the way Apocalypse Now kind of moves within its set pieces it became it definitely felt uh, visually more charged not saying that interesting the, the, I, it just for me it was all about pr- the production design is the strength of this film and the camera's more capturing the the gravitas of the scene rather than yeah yeah stylizing whereas in apocalypse now it's definitely the use of like low key lighting and stuff like that and, and silhouette <coughs> lighting is more apparent so the use yeah. the, the playing around with lighting in the camera in that film is more apparent not saying it's not in well, this I, film yeah i think the perfect word is it's more subtle in the godfather yes where you if you're watching that and you're not really paying attention to cinematography it's easier to sort of just glide over it because there are such great performances and direction mm-hmm. and, and storytelling and the quotes and the dialogue and everything um but you're right i think there is a lot of clever things happening with the cinematography that is a bit more subtle you kind of have to watch the film specifically looking for that and i think one of the things that i love so much is the way they light vito with like his eyes i think it is it like it's very harsh lighting from just above his head. It would head. have to be, yeah, top down. Yeah, because it's creating the dark mm-hmm. sort of shadows directly under his eyes. And I just, I love that. It would have to be a high angle looking down. Yeah. yeah, for sure. I'm forgetting the term. I guess I'm not talking about key or fill lighting. There's a, there's a term I'm thinking of. Well, it would be of, a key light. It'd just be yeah, facing yeah. a downward trajectory instead of capturing the Yeah, the exactly. Face. It's very harsh though. And it, you're yes. right, it's creating the shadow. And just that visual element for a character who I guess... Again, like we talk about him as if he's just a nice, sweet guy. You know, he's not, I mean, he's not Sonny. <laughs> he's not, he's in a way, he's not even Michael, especially towards the end of the film. But he, he still is, you know, the patriarch of this big crime family that are involved in murders and, you know, these awful things. So, yeah, I think the lighting and the way they frame him as he really is lit like a villain or an evil figure. And I think that's appropriate, even though we sort of connect with his more uh, honourable values of, oh, family and look out for each other and all of those things. And he's a peaceful guy as well. Like, he, yeah. when he learns of, of Sonny's death, his immediate response is, we need to make peace right now. He's able to sort of swallow down the fact that his son has just been murdered in order yeah. to go the, well, for a peaceful protest. Because his family values encompass the whole family and not just yeah. the grief for one of them. It's absolute pure leadership. Yeah, and it, and I I said this. I'm like, we all need a veto in our lives. <laughs> yeah, and I think that that level of discipline and um, uh, that like those sort of values were very subconsciously placed into Michael. Although, yeah, they push. You know, Vito's the first one to push him away, keep him in the army. That mm. he is putting him in a profession that's highly disciplined. Yeah, and doesn't let his emotions like Sunny. <laughs> get the most of him. Um, and so when his time comes to actually step into that godfather position, he is actually the best candidate and always was the best candidate to take that position. So, so was all of those manoeuvres and those placements and was that all a part of Vito's plan all along? I don't. I feel like Vito definitely wanted Sonny to take over in the sense that he very much didn't want Michael to be a part of this life, I feel like. He was very... When when he wakes up in the hospital bed, or he's not hospital, he's taken home at this point. Mm-hmm. When he learns that it was Michael who who killed um what's their names at the pizzeria and had to go to Italy, he was very. I thought he was very disappointed. Like mm. he was very upset. Like Mike was in it now. He's in the game in a way. But that being said, um, with Michael and yeah, he's you know, he was in the army. He has this discipline. But I actually thought watching this the second time around that he 
despite what he says, the quote, it's just pers- it's not personal, it's just business. I thought that was bullshit. I thought he absolutely is acting on personal gain. And I think he is kind of like Sonny in that way. Mm-hmm. Where he is, he's reactionary and he's he's killing. This is a joke. Oh, you're going to shoot a cop in the head because he he gave you a little bruise on the head, which I want to say he's has that bruise for a long ass time in this film. He does through till he gets married in Italy. It's like how long are you? How long was that bruise there for? It must have been a pretty deep bruise. <laughs> it was a good punch. Maybe it was 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 shooting him in the, mm. in the head. But I feel like he is acting on personal um, inflictions there. I don't know if you uh, think differently. No, I think that, I mean, it comes back to your logline that you get. It was a bloody revenge story, yeah. not a... And I think that encompasses that, although he tries to rationalise to us that it is a business-orientated, it's nothing more than a formality, he's only doing it because it's it's an eye for an eye, basically. Yeah, he justifies it that way. Yeah, to yeah. himself and, and outwardly, but yeah, no, it, I think it's the acts, the harsh acts of a young individual mm. that shapes him into being this... More, uh, far more merciless leader, but on yeah. a much more uh, subtle level rather than Sonny was very ho- openly hot-headed. Yeah, very like reckless and, and reactionary. And, mm. I, and I think the film really does revolve around those three different leadership styles or Vito, Sonny and uh, Michael. I think those are the three core characters because they all get moments of leadership at some point in this film. Mm-hmm. And in a really kind of bittersweet, messed up way, Michaels is the one that he kills his enemies. He kills his enemies and he ends the war. Not peacefully, violently he does. Mm-hmm. But Michael, unfortunately, he's the one that got the job done. Even yeah. though he probably didn't have that the the wider experience that, that Vito has. Yeah. And it's and a shame. I, I think that it's uh, this is what it comes back to, the two different viewing styles. You obviously know the progression into yes. part two that I do not know. But in a bubble that this film exists in, where two and three never existed, yep. even though I'm pretty sure two got greenlit very closely after the success of this film. Yeah, I mean, um, it was a three and a half hour film that came out two years later. Not to mention he had another film between uh, two and three, he had The Conversation on top of Apocalypse Now. These oh, are yeah. all films that he developed in the 70s, so he's a busy man. Um, obviously, and Apocalypse Now, as we talked about on that episode, was a rigorous production. It wasn't, <laughs> very, very it wasn't much a so. paradise and easygoing production. So, um, yeah, obviously, you know that he goes un- undergoes a, a larger journey in the second one and obviously grows probably more into that role. Yeah. Whereas this film very much ends with that iconic shot that yes. more infers... Uh, you know his position. You know this. This film starts in a, in an office space environment, finishes in that that Godfather office way. Only we're mm. on the other side of the door now. We don't get to see the the evil from in, but we can only like imagine that, yeah. what that's capable of. Yeah, exactly. Just like literally, just the motion of closing the door on uh, on K, mm. and just the the immediate fade to credits after that, or his name. It's like wow, that it is very impactful. And you're right, and and thematically, it's just excellently executed bookended it's book well it is bookended and what i love i didn't notice this until this time it is bookended from the fact that they even have a wedding and he ends up killing the not the bride the what's the name the the groom jesus mm-hmm. christ jake um he ends up killing the the groom of that wedding as his final statement at the end of the film after he's killed his enemies he's like well, i'm just gonna kill him too because he abuses my sister 
I'm going to finish off what, what Sonny said. But you're right. It visually and thematically, it is a huge bookend. And I really appreciate that. But you, I, I absolutely agree with you that not watching parts two and three, do you know roughly where it goes? No. Interesting, yeah. So um, I'm sure I will re I will visit them in the near to distant future. We'd never know, but yeah. I mean, obviously they're on the list, but I kind of like having this conversation with, <laughs> you know, you knowing what happens and mm. me not, because it means that my opinion's very much embedded to just this film, which obviously, you know, like I was talking about with Back to the Future and Star Wars, very few people, um, you know can just watch this film now only talking explicitly about this film because they've probably seen part two and three. Yeah. Well, it's because people love part two and three so much, not uh, Back to the Future and Star Wars and and Godfather because those are such well-respected trilogies. We choose to remember them. Mm -hmm. We don't do the jerk of, oh, that the part four never exists of of Shrek or whatever You know, people say. It's like they want to appreciate because the stories that continue are just as good as the original. I mean, you could argue not many people like Godfather part three, um, I think well, they like it to the same level of prestige. Exactly, exactly. I, I still think it's a good film. You would Just, argue that you could actually say the same about both Star Wars and Back to the Future. Their yeah. weakest installments are probably their third ones. Yeah, no, exactly right. But um, I think you. Well, you tell me. Do you, would you consider the ending in terms of Michael's character where he ends up? Do you see that as like a downward spiral? His arc that he's now in this life. Yeah. Do you think that's yeah? I'd say yeah. So. I mean, it's cyclical. It's sort mm. of like we don't know if, um, you know, obviously the original Godfather, our, patri- our original patriarch and Godfather, uh, Vito, we don't really know too much of his, you know, he grew up in the old country. That's pretty much mm. uh, mostly all that we've encompassed with him. We don't know if he chose this life or this life was thrust into him through his family. We don't mm. know how far back it goes, if he's the original patriarch or... He's just the next predecessor in that line, that lineage. Um, and yeah. I will say part two completely answers your question. There you go. So And Robert De Niro's performance as a young Vito is like one of my favorite performances of all time. There you go. He really does it justice. But obviously but yeah. in the bubble of this film, we don't know that. And yeah. just, it's good that they shed light on that in the second one. If they, you know, because you've obviously seen it. Um, but yeah, I would say it completes the downward spiral. Like... Like I said, that where the fact that we're with Kay, we get shut out of that room, mm. just um, implies the the circle, the cycle has been complete, and we have a new patriarch <coughs> now. He's not the same patriarch, and mm. we know this because of sort of his cold acts of of violence, and it's even more dangerous in a lot of ways. Oh yeah, and yeah. the fact that we don't see what happens after is exactly that. Whereas we were allowed in with Vito. Yeah. We got to see Vito operate, and we got to see a big part of his operations throughout the film. The fact that, yeah, like you said, when it happens to Sonny, he goes for peace. He doesn't doesn't act out in violence. Mm. He, he, he wants to make peace, which is the difference. Um, and I think uh, having those two polarise each other at different at bookends of the film is, yeah. is it, it's perfect storytelling. It yeah, it really is, and you're right. The bookend is just so well done, and and I think I think the film speaks for itself in terms of you know it is bittersweet and, and in some ways tragic that Michael is now in this life, and I think watching parts two and three really only enforces that idea. It doesn't, in fact, yeah, yeah. Either way, I reckon. Um, 
just a, just a good character, good good performances. Um, no I, there's a few specific scenes I want to just, mm-hmm. or maybe notices that I noticed. One in relation to Francis Ford's direction style. Okay. Um, there is a scene that reminded me of the opening of, of Apocalypse Now, um, where after, it's right after the the pizzeria shooting where Michael leaves and he goes to Italy. There's like a bit of a montage of all the newspapers, sort of like you know, flipping to the screen and lots of crossfades of, like, the news stories and that. And the, just the use of the crossfades and, like, the overlapping images, it just, it felt like Apocalypse Now's intro. Mm-hmm. I bet that's just something Francis likes doing. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's a good way of uh, processing information quickly, I guess. Yeah, Thoughts exactly. And, uh, of the world and of characters, so, yeah. Yeah, it, even, it, it feels like it's done for different reasons. Because mm-hmm. this is for um, expository, like, information um, while in Apocalypse Now, it's just a very stylistic thing. But I guess you can, it explains a bit of what the headspace of the character. But anyway, um, the other one, you actually used the word eerie earlier. Mm-hmm. I want to use the word eerie for the scene when Michael, uh, he's going to see Vito in the hospital, Ben. He walks into the hospital and it's just like these empty hallways and no one's there. And that, even without the use of music, and the use of music is brilliant in this mm-hmm. film. Anyway, um, I got that eerie vibe just from that scene. When he's walking by himself and he doesn't know where anyone is, and it's like, oh god, something's gonna happen. Yeah. You always feel that, even though well, you know. Especially after what we've just seen happen with, exactly. with Vito's character, it's like he almost is checking every corner just to be safe, you know. Yeah, I, I, I don't know. I just, I really appreciated that, and it looks. We've already talked a bit about the ending, and we talked extensively about the ending. Um, yeah, this film's pretty fantastic. Do you want to go on a? Highlight scenes. Like. I most certainly do. Oh, uh, very it nice. is hard to go past two scenes in particular. It is uh, the pizzeria murders. I love, mm. and I particularly love. Um, and we haven't talked too much about uh, Coppola's sound mixing, but between this and Apocalypse Now, yes. he has impeccable um, uh, respect for sound. And even in the conversation, which I've caught too, okay, his emphasis and respect for sound <laughs> design is. <laughs> is easily one of his strongest aspects. Obviously, I know he's probably not doing the mixing himself, but to have that understanding mm. and But he's definitely got the overhead So effect. explicitly to your story mm. and how scenes play out with the train going by and the flashing of the lights and stuff. It's it's incredible and he does it he does it too with the the Baptist scene later in the film. Yeah. But um bells and crying babies and creating tension with that, yeah. Yeah, and I just think that that to me is what I think about when I watch a when I copla film is how layered his worlds are and mm. how smart they are because like we were saying at the start it's not an overly complex story when you break it down. No. So it's what he does within the world, and that's not just the visuals or the set dressing. It's it's the sound mixing and creating that audio-visual landscape together. Yeah, exactly. I got that same sense, like, at the wedding, just the extravagance of it. Like, they spend, you know, half an hour of the film with nothing to do with the plot, just showing you, oh, look, look at me people here and look how happy mm. everyone is and world-building. It's creating a cultural landscape, too, mm. as well as, a, a you know, the cinematic and this audio-visual phenomenon. Yeah, and I, and I agree the way they do it sonically in the, in the pizzeria scene as well because I always love the, the musical sting at the end when he drops the gun and walks out and then it just comes up to... It was mm. even more like an old film. Than it yeah. actually is at that point, but something about that scene always gets me because it really do, and it's in his performance as well. The like, oh my god, what have I done? Mm-hmm. And it's encapsulated in in so many ways musically and the sound and the train, of course, being that final. He's going to do it. 
Um, so I agree with you. That scene's excellent. The one I wanted to point out was a little more low-key. Mm-hmm. I don't know what it was, but I was watching the scene last night. I was like, oh, this scene really speaks to me. I don't know why. Is the scene when Vito is told about Sonny's death. He comes down He comes down from upstairs. He sees, um, is it is it Fredo that tells him? I believe so, yes. I think so, yeah. And and he's drinking. He's like, you know, he's like, oh, why is... Why is my wife upstairs crying? Or he's not even asking. He's just saying, like, oh, she's upstairs crying. And just that little dialogue exchange between them where he's, oh, I haven't told her yet. She knows. Oh, but I see you're drinking. Just that little thing before he says, you know, son, he's dead. Your son is dead. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's the wrong scene, but even though, you know, look how they massacred my boy. Um, just that emotional resonance of, yeah, he's, he's not overdoing it. His response is peace, not vengeance or war. Yeah. But he's still a father who just lost his son. And it was a very subdued scene. There's no like music or anything, very basic coverage. But there was something about the, the dialogue, the lines, and the way they said them. I was like, oh, this, it, I don't know. There's something about that really spoke to me. Um, I'm, I'm going to go on a limb and say that's my highlight scene for The Godfather. <laughs> no dramas. Uh, well, The Godfather is out. Well, that was our Francis Ford Coppola um, director's corner. corner. And... The Godfather is currently out in wide release. I don't know if it's on any streaming platforms. Um, you can catch all three of them on Stan. There you go. I think Netflix got rid of it recently, the first one. But that's okay. Uh, probably the rights probably got carried over to Stan. Probably, I've yeah. always found whenever one moves to the other, it's because the well, other doesn't have There was a point the when the first one was on both at once, yeah. which was interesting. But Stan has all three. They've had all three for a while now. No dramas. Well, speaking of streaming platforms, Jake, what is new to f- cinemas this week and streaming platforms? So next week, uh, pretty of a pretty of a light week. I think around Christmas, you, you kind of know what to expect in terms of what you're getting. Uh, on Netflix, uh, we mentioned this film a lot last week at the Sunset Circle Awards. I didn't realize this was a Netflix film. Very excited that it's coming out very soon. Uh, Ma Rainey's Black Bottom which sees tensions rise uh, when trailblazing blues singer Ma Rainey and her band gather at a recording studio in Chicago in 1927. Uh, so that's one of the big uh, award contenders there. I'm very excited to see that on Netflix. Also, Wolf Creek 2, if you're into some Australian cinema. I've never caught Wolf Creek 2. I've seen the first one. Oh, there you go. Uh, coming to stand this week is Shaun of the Dead. It's a film we did with a guest, Danny, on episode 45. Great film. Uh, on Disney Plus this week, a personal favourite of mine, Jingle All The Way, with my boy Arnold. <laughs> uh, we've seen that film so many times, it's not even funny. Um, classics. Classics at uh, Hoyt's this week. To get into the spirit, you can watch The Santa Claus and The Greatest Showman. I guess that's a Christmassy film. Mm-hmm. Uh, came out unboxing there, I guess. And The Muppet Christmas Carol. Or, if you want to be more in line with today's episode of the Cinema Sarge podcast, you can watch the final cut of Apocalypse Now on the 17th. Mm, that so. gets me in a Christmas feeling. <laughs> the smell of napalm in the morning. Oh, I like it. I like what you did there. Um, and of course, at Luna, you can get the 2004 biopic, The Motorcycle Diaries. And new in cinemas, I want to say, I'm going to put a little disclaimer here because I know people who've seen it. I don't know if it's on uh, Netflix or something already. I'm a little confused by this, but this is playing at Luna in the next week. Happiest Season, which sees a young woman with a plan to propose to her girlfriend while at a family's annual holiday party, discovers that her partner hasn't yet come out to her conservative parents. Um, I actually have a friend um, who's seen this film already. I think she got like early parcels. I don't know what the deal was there, but Mm -hmm. she said it was okay. (laughs) Okay, well... Apparently one of the two girls are dicks. Right. I don't know if that gets your Christmassy spirit up. 
don't well, know. Well, speaking of Christmassy spirit, Jake, <laughs> it is going to be our Christmas special next week on the show. Yeah. And we have decided to watch a Christmas-related film. Well, yeah, you can, you can definitely debate with the internet. I'm I'm in the stands that this is very much a Christmas film. Well, then it will be our first. We didn't do Christmas last year. No, you're so right. This will be our first Christmas special. But Jake, what are we watching next week in the show? We're watching Die Hard. It's this is John. Nice beer. He just wants to spend Christmas with the family. Is Daddy coming home with you? We'll see what Santa and Mommy can do. But when he gets stuck at the office party... Merry Christmas! It'll be a holiday... Merry Christmas! ...he'll never forget. Ho, ho, ho. <laughs> Welcome to the party, pal! This Christmas... It's a time of miracles, so be of good cheer. Only John can drive somebody that crazy. Get ready to jingle some bells. And deck the halls. With bows of Bruce Willis. We to the coast. We get together, have a few laughs. Alan Rickman. Do you really think you have a chance against us, Mr. Cowboy? Together in the greatest Christmas story ever told. Hoping to spend Christmas with his estranged wife, Detective John McClane arrives in LA. However, he learns about a hostage situation in an office building where his wife is one of the hostages. Oh, no. How very Christmassy of you, Zeke. (laughs) (laughs) Well, there is Christmas in that uh, little logline synopsis I just gave you. Not to mention, I've never seen this film before. No, and I could have swore you had, but... Mm, Yes, this was uh, one of your quotes for me, if I recall. It was. That's how I screwed up. (laughs) But that's okay, Jake. This will be my first watch of this, and I'm looking forward to doing it for Christmas. For sure, and I can't wait. Next week, we're going to start quoting you again. I think I just got in six for five, which I think was actually not as good a performance as you did. Well, we'll have to look back at the episodes. Yeah, figure that out. Just as well, there's a hundred to get through. Mm, That's that's it. That's it. We've done a hundred episodes. Congratulations, sir. Congratulations. We're wearing our shirts. Absolutely. We are wearing (laughs) our shirts in unison now. But until then, once again... For a hundredth time, thank you for joining us for the <laughs> Cinema Sideshow Podcast. I was Zeke. I was Jake. And we'll catch you next week with Die Hard. <laughs>